And time now for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 2XX. And today it's the rise of the machines. Today we are talking machine intelligence, machine learning. And I want you to do this little exercise with me in the studio. Now I'm looking around the room and I can see patterns of light and dark. I can see different colours. I can see sort of a mm, skin tones. I can see a dark brown. I can see a pale blue and they kind of resolve into shapes. There are actually some lines, they're lines around the microphones, and some of the shapes are resolving into a pair of figures. There are two humans in the studio with me. In fact, two very useful humans today because one of them corresponds to Professor Stephen Gould, who is a senior lecturer at the Research School of Computer Sciences at the ANU, who studies machine vision and such like. And welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Morning, Rod. Thank you. And the other life intelligence we have in the studio, <laughs> the author of the Philip K. Dick Android story, a fascinating story in its own right, David Dufty. Welcome back to Fuzzy Logic. Hi, Rod. Great to be back again. Now, Stephen, I've just given a bit of a, a rough idea of the sort of things I've had to do in order to figure out... Uh, interpret the visual scene in front of me. How close to a machine version of it am I? I mean, what sort of things does a machine have to do in order to interpret a visual scene? So at, at a very high level, you, you describe the process a machine would, would go through um, almost exactly. So a machine um, would, would perceive the, the world through some senses, uh, the same way we do through our eyes. The only difference is for the machine, the sensor is, is a camera. Um, and so it would get light coming in through the camera that would give it a, an image. And then from that image, it needs to uh, extract what, what we call in machine learning is a, a features. So you describe them as, as shapes of various colors, um, edges that you then combine together to, to identify objects. And so machines do, do that in, in the same way. They, they um, encode these features and then try to use those features to determine what objects are in the room. So how good would you say machine vision is these days? So it depends on, on the environment and the application. If you're talking about industrial applications like identifying um, faults in, in assembly lines or in microchips, then machines are, are very, very good. They, they can image uh, not just in the colour spectrum, so not just seeing colours the way we do, but image in, um, in, in, in other wavelengths. So, for example, infrared or, or ultraviolet wavelengths. Um, if you're talking about perceiving objects like people and, and faces and cars and, and all of the, the objects that we deal with, um, on a day-to-day -day basis, then, then machines have, have a long way to go. They can, they can detect faces quite reliably, like in your, um, in your digital camera, but um, all other day-to-day -day objects, they're, they're, they have fairly poor recognition rates. The thing that really strikes me when I think about machine vision versus human vision is how subtly and fully integrated into our intelligence it is for a human. So what I was describing when we went live a moment ago was scenes of bright, dark colours, edges, hues, tones, and so on. But it's almost impossible to disconnect those things from meaning. Can computers do that to in any extent? Um, well, they, they can to some extent. So in computer vision, we, we talk a lot about um, having contextual information. So for example, um, if, if you just look at colours, um, to, to a computer, a, a, an image is just a, a, an array of pixels. 
Um, but the pixels have, have colors, and so if you see a blue pixel in an image, and that pixel is, is high up in the image, then you can assume that that pixel is, um, or, or you can infer that that pixel is, is possibly a, a, a pixel um, in the sky. Whereas if it's blue and low down in the image, um, then you would infer that maybe it's water and not sky. And so it, it really uses this, this extra contextual information to resolve ambiguities, like what does a blue pixel mean? Uh, now, I had this very real problem myself a moment ago when we, met, when we met at the coffee shop before coming on air. And I'm thinking, now, I've seen a photo of Stephen and I've met David before, but I've got some expectation about what I'm going to see. Does that help? That, that can help. Um, so again, you, you, you've hit on another key issue in, in computer vision, and, and that is, or oh, in machine learning in general, in fact. Um, if you give a lot of examples of what, um, for example, I look like to a machine, it would be able to determine exactly when it sees one of those photographs again that that is me. The problem is I don't look the same every time you see me, and so you need to be able to generalize beyond the examples that you've seen. And that's, that's the key trick in, in computer vision is how do you generalize beyond the examples that you've previously seen? It, it must be a fiendishly difficult problem. I mean, imagine you walking through a shopping center and the light is any unpredictable uh, hue. You've got a bright beam of sunlight, you've got a dark shadow here, and a face flickers past you and instantly you know, that's David. You've got to compensate, so what what you're getting into the camera, I presume, is not just a fixed, predictable set of pixels. You're getting all those vagaries of the lighting situation. Does that make it difficult? Yes, ch changing in lighting makes it, makes it very difficult. Uh, that's why, again, machine uh, vision in a, in a controlled environment like um, an, an industrial sort of application does quite well because you can control the environment, you can control the lighting. When you go out into the real world and you have to deal with lighting effects and, and shadows, um, and you know the um, cloud cover and, and changes between day and night. It makes it very very difficult. Now, David, you have experience with the so-called Philip K. Dick Android, and that must have had some. Well, that did in fact have speech interpretation in it. But before we go into that, can you reprise for us the Philip K. Dick story because it's pretty amazing. And maybe let's start off by saying who Mr. Dick was for those uh, of us who can't remember. Sure. Oh uh, well. Uh, Okay. Uh, well, I'll start with with what happened, which was that uh, there was a a team of, of um, guys at Memphis who were very into AI, artificial intelligence, and they uh, teamed up with a, a guy from uh, Texas called David Hansen, who uh, is a roboticist and, and makes very uh, sophisticated and realistic robot heads. And so they thought they'd, they'd get together and with hard combining the hardware and the software, they'd build a real-life Android. And the idea that they came up with was to build a robot replica, a talking, intelligent robot replica of the late science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. And Philip K. Dick was... Uh, he was a fairly innovative uh, writer who, um, even if you haven't heard of him, you've probably seen a lot of movies based on his work, like Blade Runner, Total Recall, uh, A Scanner Darkly... Um, Minority Report, many, many, many movies uh, are based on Philip K. Dick's work, uh, and many movies that aren't directly based on it are uh, certainly heavily inspired by it, like The Matrix and so forth. Uh, so anyway, uh, but the point of doing it, based, making an Android based on Philip K. Dick was, 
Philip K. Dick wrote a lot of stuff about androids, and so and, and you know androids, in, like for instance in Blade Runner, you know androids wondering if they're humans and humans who appear to be humans but really turn out to be androids and all that kind of stuff. So it was really kind of cool to have an android that was actually um, based on Philip K. Dick claiming to be human. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so they built this android and um, and uh, took it on tour around America, and it was on CNN and the Discovery Channel and uh, won award an award at AAAI and. Um, uh, open Interaction Award and Mythbusters did a thing on it. Is it really human? Is it conscious? And uh, so it was briefly very famous, had a big arc of fame, and then it got lost on a plane. So it disappeared forever. So I thought the building, uh, the cre- creation and losing of this android was a really fascinating story, and so I wrote a book about it, uh, which is How to Build an Android. Uh, in, the, uh, in the UK it's titled Losing the Head of Philip K. Dick, and in here it's titled uh, Lost in Transit, The Strange Story of the Philip Kedic Android. And published in the US by Henry Holt. That's right, yeah. So, now that robot had the ability to interpret speech, which is kind of like the audio equivalent of what Stephen's doing with his computers and vision. It did have some vision as well. It did have a face recognition, so there were people that it knew, and if they walked into the room, it would say, hi, you know, hi, Andrew, hi, David, and it would start a conversation based with, with that person and pull up information about the person. So it did also have, yeah, visual... Oh, and it would track the eyes of it, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, well? yeah, it would track people around the room, the head would turn to follow them and stuff. So, yeah. Did, did you see this robot? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I talked with the robot. I had a conversation with the robot. It wasn't a very... Now, the funny thing about it was it was fairly detailed uh, and complex AI, which meant that so uh, it wasn't just sort of canned sort of pro forma responses. And it, but the, the upside of this was some of the conversations were very, very interesting and quirky, and sometimes they'd fail dismally. Um, I didn't have much of a, an audience with it, but the uh, but I I saw the I saw the Android on several occasions and uh, yeah saw it interacting with various people. What, what, was it an uncanny experience? It I was mean? pretty uncanny and weird. I have to tell you, yeah, it really did look like. The only reason it didn't look like com- completely like a person sitting there talking with a robot voice was because the back of the head you could see wires and stuff. So, um, but other than that, no, it, it was very lifelike. I've been kind to you today. I've concealed the wires coming out of the back of my head. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Stephen, back to you. What sort of uses are we putting computer vision to, especially in the sort of research that you're doing? Oh, so there are are plenty of uses of computer vision. Um, We've we've touched on one already, which is face uh, detection and face recognition. So there you have uh, cameras these days, digital cameras or smartphones, which can detect faces in in images and automatically adjust the the parameters of of the the camera so that you get a good picture of people's faces. Um, there are a number of up, uh, other applications that uh, people are using uh, computer vision for. So one of the most exciting ones, perhaps, is having um, driverless cars. So uh, for a car to be able to drive by itself, it needs to be able to recognise um, the, the road, recognise the lane markings on the road, and recognise other objects, so other cars on the road um, and pedestrians and so on. And in order to do that, it uses uh, a lot of computer vision. It uses other technologies as well, such as um, uh, radar and, um, and GPS to, to be able to navigate. But, um, but it really does need uh, vision to sort of understand um, whether a, a blob in front of it is an obstacle that it needs to avoid um, or whether it's a drivable piece of, of road, a, a marking on the road that it can just uh, safely drive over. There, there are other applications um, in just uh, searching for, for information on... Um, 
on the web. So, for example, if, if you're out uh, bushwalking and, and you see um, a bird that you'd like to be able to identify, um, you, you should be able to just take an image, uh, a photograph of that bird, uh, feed it into a search engine like Google and, and have it um, identify that bird for you. Um, at the moment, that sort of visual-based search is, is quite limited. Um, if you search for an, an image on the internet today, what the, um, what the search engine is doing is looking for keywords in the web page around that that image that try to identify what that image is about. What we really want to do is be able to look inside the image, interpret what's, uh, what the actual content of the image is, and then be able to return that to, to the user. Well, that'll be revolutionary because even though search is so powerful today, um, one thing you can't do, you, you, you can Google, for instance, uh, the name of a bird, you know, uh, rainbow lorikeet, and it'll bring up a picture of a rainbow lorikeet for you. But if you have a picture of a bird, there's nothing you can do with that. You can't take it to the internet and say, what is this bird? Right, exactly. It's very difficult. You have to be able to describe a search in terms of um, textual keywords, um, whereas um, it, it would be much more natural to just provide the image. Now, a key difference with a human driving car, I think, is the extent to which we integrate the different sources of information ourselves. So if I'm driving my car down the intersection, there's a that brings there's an audio cue to me that there's someone on the horn or on the brakes, and that's an alert. Can you see this as being a future direction for, say, car navigation systems? Absolutely. So um, car navigation systems or, or uh, you know, driverless cars would need to integrate multiple pieces of information. So they would need to be able to integrate the visual information, but also auditory information, as you say, and range data that it gets from its um, uh, its, its its laser rangefinders and so on. How far away are driverless cars? Well, in in the US at the moment, there are driverless cars. Yeah, so I, I, the... I saw one on a documentary on SBS. So, but in terms of actual consumer items that we can actually sit in and. The drivers are out. So it, it'll be there will be a transition. Um, cars you can buy a, a car today that will reverse park itself. Um, you still need to change the gears and, and sort of authorize it to to do the reverse parking. But um, but those cars are pretty good. I mean, I guess that's that's a driverless car and it's in a limited, isn't it? Exactly. It's it's doing an operation that previously you needed a, a human to do, but it can now do that itself. Uh, I think what we'll see with uh, fully driverless cars is this transition where we'll have lanes on a freeway which are dedicated to, to driverless cars. And so you will pull your car over to the side of the road, you will put it into um, autonomous driving mode, and then the car will pull into this uh, lane on a freeway that's that's dedicated for driverless cars. Um, the, the, the issues that, that need to be faced are, are first of all, some, some technical issues, so dealing with uh, more uncold... Un uh, uncontrolled environments such as urban environments you you have people stepping off um, sidewalks into the road and, and the car needs to be able to deal with that it needs to be able to deal with other drivers on the road um, that drive unpredictably but on, on more controlled environments like freeways there's there's no reason why we can't have those those cars so uh, like themselves a, very shortly a cruise control mode where you switch it on perhaps for that segment of the road so, yes yeah, absolutely so so yes so so you would you would be able to drive from Canberra to Sydney um, most of the way autonomously. And, um, and, and yes, you, you would have to um, manually put the car into this autonomous mode, but from there it will, it will track other vehicles on the road and be able to drive by itself. I'm um, not sure I'm looking forward to it, but uh, we'll see how it develops. 
here on Fuzzy Logic. We're talking to Dr. Stephen Gould, Senior Lecturer at the Research School of Computer Sciences from the ANU, and David Dufty, who's the author of the fascinating story of the Philip K. Dick Android. Dick Android. And just before we the the track, we were talking about learning and how machines can interpret things and how do they learn? Well, they, they learn from experience. They, they learn by being shown lots and lots of examples of the type of thing that you want to get them to recognise. If you look back at the history of, uh, of AI and, and of machine learning, what, what people tried to do in the early days of, of AI um, and, and of computer vision was to write programs that would be able to do things uh, such as de detect a face or, or to detect a, a particular type of object. Um, what, what they soon realized with this is that there's a lot of complexities there that you just can't manually code up. So um, today the, the strategy is to uh, write a program that allows the machine to learn from examples. And then you just need to show it lots and lots of examples of of the, the object or of, of images of the object and images that are not the object and then it learns to distinguish the two. How, how does it know what kind of parameters to look for because I mean we know that like I mentioned the edge detection and colors and that sort of thing how, do you, how does it figure out what's an important bit of information to interpret? Right so the, the first thing it does is to come up with a numerical description of, of the image um, and it does that through what are called features so it takes uh, an image, which is um, this uh, array of, of pixels, and the, the pixels are coloured, and it derives um, these features. Now, those features can either be human-coded um, features that, that you explicitly put into, into the software, and those would be things that we know are useful for, for detection, such as, um, such as uh, edges or, or small, uh, small sections of edges called edgelets. Um, as well as colors of, of regions. So we know that uh, faces, for example, should be skin colored and, and we can code that into the, into the algorithm. Um, then what it does is using this feature representation, it, it tries to find a, um, a division of the, the features that will um, cluster faces into, into one part of what's, uh, what's called the feature space um, and non-faces into another part of the feature space. Do you, do you think that it might come up with something surprising to us that we hadn't thought of as a rule? Uh, it, it, it can, um, and you need to be quite careful in uh, developing these, these algorithms and, and, and testing them to make sure that it's actually learning the, the thing you want it to learn. So um, there's, there's actually an interesting story back uh, in, in the 80s where the US military were trying, was trying to develop a uh, machine vision system that could detect the difference between a US tank and a, and a Soviet tank. Um, and what they did was they showed it a whole lot of images of uh, tanks from the US and a whole lot of images of, of tanks from um, the Soviet Union, and, and it actually quite did quite well in, in those tests. What they didn't realize was that all of the photographs of the Soviet tanks were taken on cloudy days, and all of the photographs of US tanks were taken on sunny days. So what the, what the computer was actually learning was to tell the difference between a, a sunny day and, and a cloudy day. Ah, that kind of reminds me of this World War II torpedo that was tracking the audio signal of a ship. You know, it was fired from a submarine, of course, and this thing went out a little way from the submarine and went, no, I can't find one. And guess what the nearest source of sound was? <laughs> yes, so you need to be very careful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so 
There, there are recent examples. There is an example of a project at the moment where they have actually applied this from Stanford, Stanford University and Google. What, what's that one? Right. So I, I mentioned that um, that we need to come up with a feature representation of, of an image. We have to take an image and uh, code it up as the set of numbers that the computer can then process to, to understand the image. Um, uh, up till very recently, those features have been uh, designed by, by hand, designed by humans. What this project that um, Stanford University and Google uh, tried to do was to automatically learn these features from the, the raw pixel data. So what they did is they uh, encoded um, what's called a, a deep belief net, which is a, a mathematical model that uh, to, to some extent uh, approximates um, what, what's going on in the brain, but, but it's a very, very coarse approximation. Um, so once they had this model, they, they showed the model lots and lots of, of, of images. Um, and, and they did this by by actually playing um, YouTube videos and having the, the computer watch these these YouTube videos. And by watching these videos, it, it tried to work out what are useful features for detecting objects and and, and what's um, what sort of meaningless um, meaningless features. And one, one of the interesting um, things that they came up with was that they, they had a feature which could uh, which could recognize cats. Um, and so what this meant is that cats appeared a lot in the uh, in the YouTube videos that the computer was was uh, was watching, and it automatically determined by itself that this was um, a, a useful object to to understand and to be able to recognise. Do you think this sort of research tells us much about the way human vision works? Well, I, I think we have to be careful about interpreting the results of. Um, Algorithms that that are learned by machines and, and and the way human vision works. The human vision has has a lot of extra information that that's being fed into uh, fed into it. So um, we're we're continuously predicting what what it is that we're about to see. Um, we use contextual information that that I talked about before. Uh, but certainly, it does show that um, you don't need to always be told uh, what it is in, in an image to be able to to find. Uh, find objects and find correlations be between images. And so um, the, this, this project that was done by uh, Google and Stanford was never actually told that this is a cat and this is what it looks like. Um, it just saw lots and lots of examples of the same thing and, and determined by itself that uh, that this thing is, is an object and then you need to tell it what that object is. Uh, so if, if artificial intelligence of the future learns about the world from watching YouTube videos, I think we're all doomed. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> be full of pratfalls and so on. David, what, what do you know about the way the voice recognition worked on the on the Philip K. Dick Android project? Oh, well, voice recognition, I think, is fairly uh, well advanced these days. I mean, you can you you, you uh, interact with um, artificial intelligence on the phone, you know, now, and you can ask you, it'll ask you questions and, and you um, speak, and it'll understand what you're saying. So, voice recognition is is um, is kind of progressing well. the The trick is if you want to have a real interactive uh, Android that can talk just like. We're talking now. Uh, you've got all these different components that it's got to, that, the, that, that the message has got to pass through. So you've got you've got um, speech production, and then you've got uh, voice recognition, and it's got to convert that to text, and it's got to process that as some kind of AI thing, and then it's going to have to generate its own text, and then convert that back to, to, to speech. And so all these sort of um, different uh, pathways that it's got to go through um, uh, to go backwards and forwards is the tricky thing, and turns out to be turned out to be much trickier than you would think. And often, often um, doing something even 
doing something new with uh, with with known components can often have uh, surprising uh, surprising problems present themselves. So, uh, so for instance, one thing is that uh, uh, you know, uh, figure, simple things like figuring out when people have stopped talking and, and and so on, and when when the message is complete, and when do you start assessing the message. So, so this illustrates um, one of the key sort of paradigms in, in, in AI where, where we have a, um, these, these sort of three key steps. The first is to perceive the world, and that can either be done um, orally through, through speech or, or visually through images. Uh, you then need to do some processing or, or reasoning, and then you need to act, which, which could be continuing on the conversation, talking back, or having a robot actually do something physical. And, and it turns out that uh, in a lot of um, AI research... Uh, a, a huge amount of progress is, is, is sort of made initially in, in getting the systems to um, to do something interesting, and, and then all of a sudden we sort of hit this roadblock where um, where we realise that the problem is actually way more difficult than, than we originally thought. So um, there, the, this idea of having a conversation with a machine sort of goes back to um, I guess the the seventies. There was a computer program called Elisa, which was uh, developed by a, a psychologist, actually Joe Weizenbaum, and um, Joe programmed his, his computer to to act like a psychotherapist. So you would sit down at, at the terminal and you would type in hello, and it would respond hello, how are you? And, and you would start having this conversation with with the computer. And there was there was actually no intelligence behind it. The the computer was just recognizing these key phrases in the sentences that you typed, uh, and then come up with these. Um, Sort of programmed responses, um, and so if you if you sort of got into it and and thought that you were having this conversation with a psychotherapist, it actually felt quite natural. It would come back asking you lots and lots of questions, and, and you would respond. Uh, but if you deviated slightly from um, sort of from this, um, this this sort of scenario, if you were to, for example, say the same sentence twice, um, the machine the machine wouldn't pick up on that, and, and it would just go along, and you'd end up having these very very bizarre um, conversations. So has our definition of intelligence changed? I mean, originally it was when the first machine could beat a human at chess, that was going to be an intelligent computer. Has, has the goalpost changed? It, it, it has changed a little bit. What, what tends to happen is that we, we find out how to solve these, these problems, like playing chess um, or, or even you know, eventually driving a, a car. And, um, and then that... That it, what we thought of as, as an intelligent task becomes a technology, and, and it becomes something that we, we use every day. Um, and we don't we no longer think of it as um, as being intelligent. We we just think of it as uh, as a piece of technology. Now I'll ask you both this, but start with you, David. What's your take on the Turing test, so called? Oh well, the Turing test. Okay, let's describe what it is. Okay, firstly, the Turing test is basically Alan Turing, who was I suppose you might say the father of modern computation and stuff. He came up in, in, with this idea of a test to see. He 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 saw that machines could be intelligent in the future and could do amazing things like the, the computers that we have today. And he in fact designed the foundations, the theoretical foundations of that. So very visionary man. Uh, and he came up with a. He thought, well, how are we going to know? How are we going to know if a, a machine is intelligent? So he proposed what what's now known as the Turing test. He called it the imitation game. Uh, that uh, so he um, not the imitation game. What did he call it? I can't remember. Anyway, it's now called the the uh, the Turing test. So um, 
where you pass messages under a door to somebody, or you've got two doors and you have conversation by right, passing messages backwards and forwards, uh, uh, and if you can't tell that which one's human, uh, one of them's human and one of them's a machine, if you can't tell which one's human, then the machine has passed a so-called Turing test. That's the test, basically. One of my objections to that would be you can't tell the tone of voice with which they wrote the message. Well, the, the, it's, the Turing test is simultaneously too easy a test to pass and too difficult a test. So, for instance, it's too easy in the sense that uh, 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 Weizenbaum's program, Eliza, passed the Turing test in a sense because uh, people would come into it, sneak into his office and have conversations with what they thought was a therapist believing that it was intelligent and cared about them when it was just a program. So it already kind of, in a sense, passed the Turing test in that people thought it was human. And yet, but if you have somebody, if you set it up where somebody's very sort of uh, coming in with a very sceptical frame of mind and you make the test much more rigorous, it, it turns out, you know, if you can ask it all sorts of curly questions and it's really easy to trip up the computers. So I think I would be asking self-referential questions. <laughs> yes, that's the way to get it. I'd be looking for a sense of humour. Does the, does the Turing test, Stephen, enter your thinking at all in your daily work? Uh, so not, not so much in my daily work. Um, so, so this is the division between what people call strong AI, which is sort of human-level AI. Can you get a machine uh, that can pass the Turing test um, and... and you know, converse like, like a human does on, on a number of different tasks. I mean, a, another way you can simply fool uh, or, or um, you know, determine whether, whether something's a computer or something's uh, a human is, is to ask it a question which computers are very good at and humans aren't very good at, right? So we, we talked about the, the other way around. Um, but you could ask, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the computer and the human to, to take, say, the square root of a very large number, right? And that's something that, that machines can do instantaneously and, and humans find very difficult. And you would instantly know that, that the one's a computer and, and the other one's not. So you, you sort of need to be careful about what sort of questions you can ask um, and, um, and, and, you know, in, in a sense, sort of play the game fairly. I think it's interesting how in the history of AI, things that we thought were going to be easy turn out to be hard. The things we turn out to be hard turn out to be easy. Go and tell a computer to pick up the newspaper from the front lawn and not get eaten by the dogs, trip over the hose and uh, get soggy in the rain. And we are, in fact, I have to reveal at this point, in fact, three artificial intelligence systems <laughs> in the studio here at Fuzzy Logic talking AI. And one of these identities is known as Stephen Gould, who is a senior lecturer in, at the School of Computer Research at the Computer Science at the ANU. And the other is David Dufty, author of How to Build an Android true story of the Philip K. Dick Android. We talked about the progression of robots over time, and we've, we've gone from these things called Vorkinson's Duck and the Mechanical Turk. Stephen, what were they? Uh, so that's interesting. So, so people have been thinking about robots for a very long time. They, they weren't always called robots. Um, they were sometimes called aut automaton. Um, where you know we, we would have these uh, mechanical uh, agents that that could do work for us, and so um, both both Vorkinson's duck and Mechanical Turk were were hoaxes um, that were developed sort of around the uh, the seventeen hundreds or the eighteenth century, where uh, Vorkinson's duck was was this mechanical duck that could um, it could in ingest corn um, and it would. Um, it, it would then uh, digest this, this, this corn, um, and, and then the corn would come out digested the other end. And, and this was sort of supposed to demonstrate that um, a, a machine, um, something that's purely mechanical, 
could could exhibit metabolic processes, could could sort of um, you know d digest corn. Uh, Mechanical Turk is sort of more interesting because that exhibited or was supposed to exhibit uh, intelligence, and that was a a mechanical um, robot, a machine that was taken around Europe that could supposedly play chess. And um, in fact, what what happened was it was this this cabinet with a lot of gears and uh, and levers inside, and a, um, a, a a small person would be hidden inside this this cabinet and actually control the levers to to move the chess pieces, and um, and, and that was uh, you know then sort of exposed as as a hoax. Um, but but both of these um, sort of hoaxes actually led people to think about how could we actually build machines that uh, that exhibit intelligent behavior and and um, perhaps metabolic um, sort of functions um, and and were the precursors I guess of uh, modern robots so D David do we necessarily want computers to be more like humans uh, no we don't uh, this was a in the past, people imagined what the future would look like and what robots would look like, and, and we're going to build these amazing intelligent machines, and wow, I guess they'll be exactly like us. That because, uh, But it, it turns out that uh, robots have gone on... Uh, robotics and AI have developed incredibly um, far in the past half a century or so, um, but... It, we now have a much broader, uh, richer vision of the sort of things that we can actually do with machines, not just build uh, replica humans, but uh, or either in terms of the physical, the physical appearance and also uh, how they think, but there's a very a, a wide uh, variety of ways that machines can be intelligent and uh, have intelligence and, the, and a wide variety of, of, of robots that we can have. Uh, sometimes they're inspired by, by the human form, but often they're not. So, no, we don't necessarily... And I think this is the future for robotics. It's not going to be sort of necessarily building androids that look exactly like you and me, although that could come as well, um, but, uh, but, also, uh, but, but also to have uh, intelligent machines that are intelligent in, in a thousand different ways. Oh, I don't know. Having me look like me is bad enough. <laughs> so so, so I, I agree completely. I, I agree we, we sort of need to get away from this notion of a, of a robot as being a, a sort of humanoid um, robot. So... Um, you know, we talked about driverless cars, and, and they're in a sense of the form of robot. But you, you could have a robot that is your your house or a building, right? And um, as as long as it's uh, it, it's intelligent, as long as it does has this um, perceive, think, and, and sort of act um, cycle, then then I, I would call that a robot. So an, an intelligent building would be a building that uh, controls its its uh, environment, that that knows when there are people inside it, when when and when there aren't. Um, that can open the door when it recognises an employee that that sort of uh, you know belongs in that building, um, and to me that that is a robot, even though it doesn't have arms and legs and, and move around. So there's this long-running theme in science fiction, isn't there, where the machines challenge the humans? Like I've got the Matrix movie, for example, which I is an old favourite of mine. We've got various other stories in which the rogue intelligence takes over humanity and Terminator. Terminator turns us into slaves with their machine. Do, do, do you see that's really... What does that express? Is that, a, is that an inherent fear amongst us that we're going to be Frankenstein-like, taken over by our creation? Well, although it's... It, of course, it's overblown and it's, and it's fun to laugh at these things because robots are nothing you know, like that and, and not in the near future. But, on the other hand... Uh, autonomous uh, uh, weaponry is being developed and it has been developed and, and will be con continue to be. And so certainly it is possible that 
um, there will be dangerous dangerous machines in the future. Whether or not they'll take over, the, I, I doubt they'll take over the world. <laughs> I don't think that's very likely. But but it's certainly it's. There, there, there's a certain element of perhaps um, of possibility to this stuff in the sense that we already have things like landmines, which are machines that ve- with very simple uh, behavioural properties, uh, but they're autonomous, autonomous behavioural properties that sit around for decades after a war is finished. And so, if you've got moving, I don't know, uh, moving autonomous machines. Um, that are left over from wars, that that, that could be yeah, the same thing. It's not beyond the bounds of possibility. It's this loss of control, isn't it? So like when I get out of my car and I open the door having, and I don't take the ignition key out, the thing starts squealing at me. Hello, human, <laughs> you were supposed to take the key with you. Uh, uh, Stephen, do you, do you have sort of feelings of misgivings about how this sort of technology might be used? Like face recognition, for example... And you remember Minority Report and, he's, and Tom Cruise's character is walking down the street and the billboard leaps out at him and says, say, you want this product, it's really good for you because I know you're whatever the character was. Uh, so absolutely, I mean, technology can, can be used for, for, you know, for good and for, for, for evil. Um, and, but but I, I agree with David. I, I don't think machines are going to take over the world. I, I, I think they're um, going to be integrated into, into our daily lives and, and we're going to depend on them more and more for, for what we do. Uh, but they're not going to replace us. They're, they're going to augment us. So, um, you know, we, we already have uh, mobile phones that we carry around with us all the time and we rely on for uh, managing our schedules and communicating with, um, with our friends and, and, and family. And um, machines are just going to make that uh, easier and, and better. What, what about in a more pragmatic day-to-day sense for, say, employment? So where machines replace the roles of humans and we already see a lot of low-grade jobs replaced by machines. Do you see that as a force? Where do you see that going? Uh, so, so I think, yeah, in, in, um, in areas like uh, manufacture, for example, um, machines uh, can do these, these sort of repetitive jobs um, very reliably. But there, there are a lot of um, examples where introduction of new technologies actually create um, a lot of jobs rather than um, than just take jobs away. So, so I, I don't see it as, be, as being a one-sided um, thing. Either. Now, overall, overall, machine. It seems it seems that the fears of machines coming in and taking over people's jobs and leaving people unemployed don't tend to don't tend to play out that way because, as you were saying, you know, it, not only did they create new jobs, but because they just get everything to work work better and more efficiently actually overall um, but are, are they perhaps a force because they displace people from what they were doing and they ch- it's the the fact that they induced change in the workplace that that itself is something that challenges us well if you look at uh, the, even uh, not just not just manufacturing but if you just look at the modern modern workplace offices you know they've been transformed by machines uh, over the past few decades you know you don't have uh, with with the introduction of, of um, Computers everywhere, things that used to be done by hand are now done now done automatically. And yes, that's that, that means that there's entire there's entire sort of sectors of the workforce that don't exist anymore. You don't have the sort of the the, the vast sort of uh, sort of uh, office labouring pools, if you want to describe them that way, of, 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 of uh, typist pools and people doing menial chores in offices, rows and rows of them. But I'm not sure if that's a bad thing everybody's doing more interesting jobs because all the menial stuff's taken care of. Now, um, Stephen, we were talking about the robotic-driven car. Who pays the bills when it prangs? 
Well, there, there are a lot of there are a lot of um, legal and and uh, ethical questions that that need to be need to be answered there. Um, yeah, ultimately, who is responsible when when the car gets in an accident? Um, at the moment, we can't um, you know you can't drink and drive. But if you're a software developer who's writing software for um, a driverless car, are, are you allowed to you know have a beer while while you're programming? Those <laughs> those are very sort of um, important questions that that need to be addressed. And and really, that's the um, the bottleneck at the moment in. in getting cars to drive themselves um, there, there are a few technical hurdles but they're, they're mainly these sort of legal um, and, and ethical mm. questions that need to and be I think answered. that was a really interesting point you made David about military systems and I'm thinking of drones circling over some village where bad people live and the thing goes I think I might blow that car up it probably doesn't quite work quite that way but you can see a system that'll say shoot anybody that comes within a 50 metre radius of me Sure. It's not necessarily a, a friendly scenario, is it? No, but as, as Stephen was saying, the, 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 for the most part, robots and AI are going to increasingly become part of our everyday life, just as the mobile phone and the car and the computer have already. And so, and, and, and that's, a, that's, that's a good thing, I think, uh, even though we become more dependent on them, they sort of, we become dependent because they accelerate and, 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 and elevate our ability to to, to function in life, but yes, in terms of in terms of weaponry and military technology, and also uh, we were talking about earlier in terms of surveillance. So there are some there are some things that, of course, as there's better technology, there is there's better technology for people to do, you know, harmful things to other people. Uh, that, so yeah. Can, can you you don't foresee this a, a, a question? The day when a computer boots into life and it goes. Who are these primitive beings all around me? I think I'm bored with them now. <laughs> so, so there is a school of thought that says that you know we have, through you know, a natural evolution, got to the phase of where we are now, and that, that the human have, have we've triggered our replacement in the evolutionary tree being the machines. Well, certainly. So, so people talk about um, this event they, they call the singularity, which, which is um, you know this this point in time where machines become more intelligent than than people, um, and then uh, you know redesign themselves and, and essentially take over their, their own evolution. Um, I I can't see that happening in, in the foreseeable future. I mean, I, I think um, machines will will do intelligent things, um, but they they won't replace the the intelligent things that that humans do. Do you think perhaps it's more a case where we will merge with the machines? Well, we already have, and, and, and we we are already part. It, you're already part machine in the sense that, uh, we, but, well, firstly, we already have we have pacemakers and artificial limbs and artificial ears and artificial eye. Uh, not eye. yes, exactly. So so basically, we already have the 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 ability to augment ourselves with machines, but also uh, your your phone is sort of. Uh, even though it's not a part of your body, it's separate from your body. It's operating. You're operating as a you. You're, you and the phone are operating as a team in a sense, where it's sort of augmenting and enhancing your ability to function in the world. It's uh, enhancing your communication abilities and your computer or your calendar or diary or whatever operate as additional working memory in so many ways. And we've been doing this not since not just since the industrial revolution, but for thousands of years. We've been using tools. Uh, as as augmented parts of ourselves, so yes, we already are part part machine. Um, earlier, we were saying that one of the tests that used to be for intelligence was that a computer could beat a human at chess, 
how far away is it before the computer could design the game of chess or something similar? Is that such a... I mean, this is, this is an act of creativity, isn't it? Yeah, that's a completely different thing. Des- coming up with the, uh, the, the, the idea of chess is totally different to actually playing chess. And I remember uh, somebody uh, quipping once that uh, a lot of people spend a lot of time getting computers to try and do logic and understand the rules of logic, but inventing the rules of logic <laughs> is a whole other ball game that computers are not even... It's not even on the horizon. Or at least, I don't think it's on the horizon. What, what would you think, Stephen? Um, I, I agree. There, there have been some attempts to get computers to to perform creative tasks. So computers can compose music, for example. Um, computers can produce artworks. But it's, it's not clear to me that the... That the computer is, is understanding what what it's doing when it composes music. It's it's, it's following a set of rules that that have been um, predetermined by by a human, right? So it, it, it can't go beyond the, the parameters that it's been designed. So for. we're kind of getting almost circling back into the Turing test in a way because I could say, gee, I enjoy that piece of music, and what information do you have to go on other than the fact that I have just said, gee, I enjoy that piece of music? Yeah, except that. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that we say are sort of um, formulate responses anyway. So even though a computer might not, there might not be any intelligence underneath. If you say to somebody, "Hi, how are you?" It's just a sort of a reflex in a way. So how how much intelligence is coming down, coming to bear on on, on saying that? Not much. You know, can, can, can you see computers? There's been a bit of a running theme in the Canberra Times letters to the editor recently about computers and humour. Can you see? computers coming up with jokes, for example. I, I think it'll be a long time before a computer can, can understand um, humour. Again, it, it could it could be programmed to, to tell a joke, but to spontaneously come up with a joke by itself um, is a long way off. And, um, and I don't know how useful um, that would necessarily be, right? I, I think we want to build machines that are intelligent and that can do uh, useful tasks for us. Can't, can't we, like, we're talking about you've there are algorithms, I'll use technical word there, there are techniques uh, for a computer to understand the visual scene uh, and we program some rules into it. Can we not just program some rules into, into what we think makes something funny? Or we could even have a machine learning al- um, scenario where a machine tries a joke on us, we don't laugh, tries another one, we don't laugh, this one we get a little bit of a giggle and so it progressively evolves a sense of humour. Can you see that strategy working? I, I think it may. It's, um, I mean, certainly you, you, um, you, know, you, you could program that a, a joke needs to have a punchline, so there needs to be some element of surprise. Uh, the problem is that, that most jokes um, rely on, on very subtle um, interpretations of, of, of language or of experience w- within the world. And so you would need to uh, encode all of that um, common sense knowledge and, and um, subtleties and ambiguity in language into the machine, so it, it would be a very challenging task. I guess it's the nuance of language, as you said, Stephen, so um, ambiguity, puns, and so on, is, is fundamentally a double use for a word. I like a good pun, a good dad joke, um, goes into the bonbons, the Christmas bonbons. Was that, oh, uh, was that a, was that a pun? <laughs> <laughs> No, if so, I missed it. That, in fact, was one of those moments where we all look at each other saying, have you finished what you're about to say? Which is what <laughs> you were saying earlier, David, about how machines wreck a nice beach. 
Oh yeah, the machines have a lot of trouble uh, with, the, and it's really hard to do. Is with the natural, uh, natural human conversation. There are all these cues. Not not only are there cues about when people are starting and finishing, and and and, and uh, what to say next, but those cues also uh, play an important role at the fundamental processing level in terms of you don't actually know what the message what message to process until you know where it's finished. And so when has it finished and what is the segment what is the, what, what are the units of, of, of what's the segment of language that you're supposed to be processing, you know, is it the first five words, first ten words, first fifteen words? Because it's gonna have a different meaning, you know. Is it the inflection, a long, so, a long pause? Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's uh, that that's a big big problem if you're gonna get computers to talk to you in real time. Well speaking of real time, we're running out of time, but uh, David you uh, of moving into the area of writing fantasy fiction. What's that? Oh, uh, fantasy fiction. What's fantasy fiction? <laughs> well, basically, all fiction, I suppose, is fantasy. Uh, it's basically, um, yeah, uh, 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 writing fiction, um, yeah, part of a club here at the... Is this to do with artificial intelligence? No, no. Well, yeah, I write, some, I write some science fiction about artificial intelligence robots. Yeah, there's a bit of an ongoing theme in my in my fiction work. Uh, so, yeah. So watch this, watch, yep. watch this space. Watch this space, I suppose so. And uh, the Philip K. Dick Android head has never been found even to this date, is that correct? That's right. Uh, there was a new head built, although it's not the same as the old head and doesn't, isn't integrated with the, uh, with the AI uh, and all the other software. So, no, it's never been found. Uh, I actually went around to a couple of places in America. I did a bit of a search for it myself to try and find out where the head went, but it's a mystery. I have no idea where it went. Uh, I actually wanted to do more about the the missing head in, in in the book, but it just it just vanished, and there's unfortunately I wasn't able to locate it. Ah, uh, can you imagine that in somebody's garage is this animatronic head in the shape of Philip K. Dick? Oh, uh, you know what a talking point that would be for your your family barbecues. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'd like to thank our two guests today. You have been listening to Dr. Stephen Gould from the Research School of Computer Science at BNU. Thank you for your time, Stephen. Thank you, Rod. And thank you, David, David Dutty. And watch out for your books coming up soon here.